Now, now, now it's on. Okay, good morning, everyone. So thanks for taking the opportunity to chat. We're trying to build in some more time and fellowship. It's a part, actually, of one of our annual goals. We want to connect more and more. So uh, relax and have, if you want to run down and get another cup of coffee or if you want to reload hot water and make some here, that'd be great too. We're having an opportunity to consider our time is in God's hands based on the book of Ecclesiastes. And each of these sections can actually stand on their own. This one today has to do with our toil. At times, toil takes a toll, believe it or not. And those of you, whether you're in the workforce or retired, we have lots of insights from Solomon to consider today. So that's the study guide is printed front and back. Your Bibles are handy, either electronically or in front of you. And I'm ready to open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the skills and abilities to live in your world and to serve others by earning a living and to take care not only of our immediate needs, but also those of our family and friends and to be generous and kind. We ask you to bring special insights today from the viewpoint of the teacher, Solomon. Help us to understand better our role in this world for you in reflecting your love. Amen. The initial paragraph still is there. Time flies. You've heard that a gazillion times. It's true, isn't it? As creatures under the Creator, we need to ask, how do we spend our time and how do we do that wisely? So we'll be looking at, starting at chapter 2, verse 17, into chapter 4 today. And for the sake of hearing or the recording that will be there, instead of putting a mic in front of you, I'm at verse 17. Are you there? Of chapter 2. How about this to start? So I hated life <laughs> because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with the their, um, which, with which they labor under the sun all their days. Their work is pain and grief. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. I'm going to pause there. About that statement, I hated life. Just compare that phrase from Solomon with the words of Jesus here, saving us a little time. Instead of looking up, I have it on the screen. You want to read that out loud with me from John chapter 12? Everybody together, here we go. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So the question is, evaluate these two. If Solomon, so I hated life because the work I that is done under the sun was grievous to me. And Jesus says anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Are they identical? Are they different? Are they the same uh, viewpoint, attitude? What, what in all the world is happening here? What's your gut sense when you hear Solomon? I hated life. 
or it's grievous to me. Sounds like he's a happy camper. No? Sounds like sounds like what? Sounds like depressed, despair, sad. I hated life because the work is done of the Son is grievous to me. But what about Jesus' statement? Whoever, anyone who hates their life in this world would keep it. What do you think about that tone and that viewpoint? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Ray? Keeping the life that he hates? <laughs> Jesus is talking about hates their life in this world. Is that a life you'll also hate? Let's think about a little bit more about what life is. I have Linda giving us insight. So. Um, uh, the focus of your life? The focus of your life. If your toil on this earth is the focus of your life, then that is what you will have for eternity. But if your if faith is the focus of your life, then you have eternal life. Which is joyful. Which, which is joyful. Let's just pause for a second and think about this concept of life. Um, normally, we think of life in terms of our physical existence, right? Your heart is beating, your lungs are pumping in and out, blood is coursing through your veins, your nerves are firing. Physical life. You need to rest, you need to eat, you need to sleep. That's what we normally think of. Very often in the scriptures, though, life has something more to that. When we talk about eternal life, which we start now already in Jesus, we're talking about a relationship. Real life is a relationship with a relationship with God. That's real life. The wages of sin is death. The opposite of real life is real death. And that isn't just six feet under pushing up daisies when your physical life's end. Life ends. What is the wages of sin? The payment for sin is death. The payment for sin is actually not just going under the ground or slid in a mausoleum wall or cremated. What, is, what does that mean? The wages of sin is death. Separation from God and what is another word for separation from God forever? That would be, yeah, somebody said it. Hell, right. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Jesus suffers hell, which is separation from God's love. That is real death. The opposite of that, real life, is being connected to God. So, Jesus is saying, whoever loves their physical life and focuses all their attention on that, as Linda was saying, will lose it. Whoever hates physical life in the sense that it's not the priority, but my life with my God is the priority, will end up keeping a relationship with God forever. What's the priority? Jesus is talking in the positive sense about our existence on earth, yes, is physical, but more important is our relationship with him. And if you prioritize that, you get to keep that relationship forever. Solomon is talking only from the earthly point of view in the perspective of physical life. And once again, this whole book, cover to cover, Ecclesiastes in its 12 chapters, is giving us a sense 
of what life would be like without God. If you don't have a relationship with God, well, then all you get is this physical experience. And no wonder his life's work seemed like toilsome labor, and I hated it. We'll have more to say about that as we go on. Did you ever feel like you'd make a good bum? Did you ever feel like you'd make a... Who'd want that, huh, Nancy, right? Did you ever feel like you'd make a good bum? Ever have days when you thought, I could, I could, I could, just, I could just do nothing, and that would be good. Well, then we have these Bible passages. In Genesis 2, the Lord took... Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Already in the perfect world, Genesis 2, before there's sin, God gave Adam responsibility, a sense of worth. I find it interesting already in the first couple chapters of the Bible, you have the key things that go through all of our experience and all of Scripture. On the sixth day of creation, God made Adam, then he made a matched partner, and they had primarily their greatest joy, a vertical relationship with him. But when God designed the matched partner, Eve, they also now have a horizontal relationship with each other. And on top of that, he gave them a sense of worth. You have a purpose in life. He gave them work to do. And this wasn't pink slips or boring or toilsome, but a delight and a privilege. Only when sin came into the world, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat food, thorns and thistles. How about Ephesians 4? Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Thessalonians, Paul writes to those Christians, we urge your brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak be patient. Second Thessalonians, same group, a later letter. We hear that some among you are idle, and disruptive. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the food they eat. I've felt once in a while, it would be okay to be a bum and do nothing, sit around, go golfing, work crossword puzzles, maybe exercise a little, I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> but no, the Lord God wants us to use skills and abilities he's given us in the perspective of his love. Verses 18 to 21, he must leave all he owns to someone. You saw that as I read that paragraph. Agree or disagree, Solomon is speaking against estate planning. Do you think he's speaking against estate planning here? Who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish and that they'll have control over all the fruit of the labor which I worked at. A person may labor in wisdom and then leave it all to someone, another person who's not worked for. This too is meaningless. Is he against estate planning? <laughs> what do you think? Nancy, what do you think? Estate plans, a person thinks about and plans. I mean, that's why it's called a plan. And so that's why it's called a plan. Estate planning is called a plan. Yeah. If you're smart enough to know what to do with it. But what if you hand it off to the next generation or someone and then they blow it or waste it? <laughs> what about that? Is estate planning a dangerous thing? Is it bad? Is it good? Is it... Any thoughts on that, Bill? Well, you could take that phrase in a different sense. He must leave 
Got to leave it to somebody. It's just not going to go away. But he's frustrated that maybe it goes to someone who's not going to take care of it. Joanne? You worked in estate planning. Whoa, we have the expert now. If you don't make your plans, then... Yeah, the same kids who fought over the biggest piece of pie, if you don't have plans, they're going to... Sometimes there's vindictiveness and... Yeah. If you want to leave it to charity, you could do that too. Right. <laughs> leave it to charity, leave it to your church, and make all the kids mad. <laughs> Joanne, say. Solomon is not arguing against estate planning. He's just talking from the viewpoint of if there is no eternity, if there is no God, all we have is this life, and he's stating the fact. You know, you don't know what's going to happen to it when you die. You might have to leave it to somebody, anybody, but it might fritter away. Now, from our perspective, this is what Ecclesiastes does, and you're going to hear this again and again. It makes us long for this connection that God gives us through Jesus with himself so that they have a different perspective on things, a different view. But Ecclesiastes was put into the Bible and designed by God through Solomon the writer to give us this emptiness, this hollowness. If you don't have your God in your life and a close relationship with him, well, then there's not much left but meaninglessness. And you can't take it with you, right? So what if you leave all of the hard-earned goodies that you have in life to someone and then they fritter it away? What's the difference? If you're in heaven, it won't matter anyway. Who cares? Now, we look at it from the perspective that we have the gift of heaven, which is ours, so why not do some estate planning so that maybe you can prevent some arguments among the next generation, maybe not, but you can also bless them and his work. That's why we encourage people to think carefully in estate planning and to do such. There's a very small percentage of Christian people who are involved in actively doing estate planning. We encourage all to do that because it's amazing what can happen um, for your, uh, what is when you're in heaven and what your estate can do to still bless the kingdom. And we've had that happen too. I can think of several examples of members of Grace Church. Uh, they're not on this earth anymore. They're enjoying heaven. But, you know, it worked their life, and you wouldn't think of them at all as being wealthy. But, you know, as time goes by, slowly it accumulates. And then when they passed on, they were joyfully writing in their estate plan that half of their income or even more would be left for their Lord's work and for his church. And then substantial sums is like unbelievable. Who knew? but it's a great blessing. We often have this experience, too. I remember uh, 40 years ago or so talking with people about this, and they would say, well, estate planning, I'll put in my will then that I'll, I'll save $5,000 for the church when I die. Well, the person ended up many decades later being substantially wealthy, and $5,000 was like 0.02% of their estate, you know. Better to put in a percentage. 10% for the Lord, or 50%, or all of it, or whatever, then it can continue to be a blessing in a proportionate way. How about this? In verses 22 and 23, which I read, even at night their mind does not rest. A business person you know is suffering from insomnia. 
She cites job stress as the reason. What steps can you take to help? What would you say to such a person? Pray to God to give you peace. Okay, what else would you say to such a person? Meaningless, meaningless. meaningless. <laughs> Focus on what counts and your job will be in perspective, right? <laughs> what else could you say, Linda? Add some balance to your life, so add God to your life. Add some, so. add some balance to your life. Add your God to your life and things will fall. It may not make the job perfect or delightful but you'll have the balance, right. I thought somebody was also going to say, quit your job. <laughs> but then without an income, find a different job. But the balance way to go is the way to go. Put it in perspective. Verse 24 to 26. A person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What do you think of when you hear the phrase, hand of God? What's the first thing that comes into your mind? The hand of God. What comes into your mind? Sarah. God is in control because he is the God of great power and mercy. That's missing from this book. The mercy of God is not a big feature in this book. On purpose, it makes us long for that. Verse 25, how does this hint at the theme of the book? James chapter 1. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? James, the apostle, says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. The theme of this book is hinted at in this verse and in this verse 25 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and also summarized here. Solomon writes the book and keeps saying again and again the phrase, under the sun. I don't know if you noticed in these first verses I read from verses 17 to 25, it happens at least five times. Why does he keep repeating, under the sun? Do you know why? Want to guess why? Trish. Yeah. What does it look like under created light, under the sun? What is life's experience like? What will you feel like? What will you be doing? What, will you, what is life going to be like if there is only created light? What it makes us long for is uncreated light. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world, right? I'm the light of the world. He brings the light of true relationship with God, true life. He enlightens us spiritually. It's our connection with God. And so Solomon is writing this from the viewpoint of created light under the sun. He repeats it, repeats it, repeats it, repeats it. This is what's going to be your experience if you have no God and no connection with him. This is just reality. And when you read this book, we're going to find it here, the next chapter, the next chapter, the next chapter. You get done with Ecclesiastes and you're just, you're like, you're thirsty, you're longing. 
I, I need to have Jesus in my life. I need to have a connection with God. I need his love and mercy. Otherwise, it's just meaningless. It's just a breath on, cold, of cold, on a cold day. It just disappears. There's more to it. Ecclesiastes makes us long for it. So, verse 26. Uh, leave it to someone who will who pleases God. Who really is the person who pleases God? Here's a passage I want you to read with me. It's not that long. Read it together. It's on the screen. Ready? Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it's the person connected to Jesus by faith. That's you. We are the ones who please God. I have another section coming, one of the more famous sections of Ecclesiastes. It's chapter 3. See if you recognize this and seems familiar. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Remember the birds? Those of us who uh, grew up in the 60s know that song. From Look it up. Those of you who are younger, check it out on Google. You just type in the birds time. Turn, turn. <laughs> what is the whole point of this, though? Fourteen opposites, pairs of opposites. What is Solomon trying to teach us? What do you think he's trying to teach us with these pairs of opposites? I find it interesting, 14 of them. By the way, in the Old Testament scriptures, it shows up in the picture book, Revelation. The number seven is rather significant. It's true in uh, Israelite life, seven is the connection of God, three in one, three to humans, four, the four corners of the earth, four earth. The, this connection we have with God is seven. And 14 is a multiple of that. It's an interesting little hint here. But what is, what is the point of this poem other than interesting? Pairs of opposites 14 times. Sarah. Life in this world is. Life continues. People are born. People die. People do this. Okay. It just keeps happening and happening. Nothing new under the sun. It's the same. Okay. What do you think also, anybody else, insights on what this poem is about, these 14 contrasts? John. It's like the line from something else, God give us the wisdom to know the difference, you know, when to laugh and when to cry. When to laugh and when to cry. God gives us the insight on to do that. Okay. Did you have thought, Linda, too? That's part of God's plan of uh, creation of the world, that they will have life or, you know, born, die, each, there's a book into everything. There's a book into everything. God's design for the world is once sin came in the world, there will be life, there will be death, there will be 
all these contrasts and experience. And then that leads us exactly to what I was thinking about with this poem. Um, what control do you have over your birth? God is the one who also decides when it's your time to die. What do you do when you plant something to cause it to grow? What about weeping and laughing? What about mourning and dancing? Circumstances in life come our way and they are all under God's control, his hand. Really, all of these pairs make us think into just what you were saying. Life can repeat itself again and again and again and again, but really, it's all under the hand of God, is it not? God is in the, this poem makes us think with all of its opposites of life's experiences, which are up and down, good and bad, but finally, again, it goes back to the theme of the book. You start looking at this poem and read through the pairs and then you read through it again and think about it again and again and this repeated cycle, wait a minute, it doesn't just happen randomly. God set this in motion and God is, in the, one who, God is the one who is in control. And I believe that's what Solomon was doing with this poem for us. How about verses 9 and following? I'm going to read through verse 14. So what do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and, to, and do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so people will revere him. A couple of things on the study guide. I find that line and phrase interesting. He's made everything beautiful in his time. So a friend of yours is suffering, dealing with either physical or mental anguish or both, could you say this to that person? You got a friend who's, you know, struggling. She is going through a tough time, right? Mentally or physically or both. And you say, you walk up and you say, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Could you say that? Would you? Jade. Things change. Write it out and... R write it out. On what basis do you say that, though, Jane? Well, trusting in the Lord if she takes her cares and concerns to God and asks that he help her through this. What if he doesn't? What if the person is sick and stays sick? I'm just challenging you now, I know. <laughs> That's because we live in a sinful world. Ah. But she has him, he's there by her side and to give her strength to get through it. Right. He never promised to take them all away. But he does promise he'll always be our side. Because I'm thinking of another passage, and you know it from Romans chapter 8, right? God works all things together for our good, for those who love him, right? So 
that's really what Solomon is saying here. Thank you, Jane. That was very insightful. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And, you know, when you think about this in the bigger picture now, what Solomon is doing, he's always making us long for, okay, the Romans 8 passage or what Jane was describing. Yeah, life may be very difficult. And it, you ask God to help, but it may not change. It may still be difficult. He's by your side. He's also going to work that out for your good while you live here. And eventually, you will be in heaven. There is no guarantee that this life will be perfect or a bed of roses. That if you're suffering, all you need to do is go to God and pray. He'll be by your side and make it all better. No, you might get sick and stay sick. You might get sick and die. But what is God doing? We know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So then we begin to adopt and understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5 when he says that we can even boast, we can even rejoice in our sufferings. And he starts out that chapter because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've gained access by grace into this faith in which we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have this connection with God. And we also rejoice or boast in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were ungodly, God saved us. Isn't that See, that, that's the whole point Paul is saying. Through the, as Jane said so beautifully, what God does, and Solomon has one little line in here that helps us, that even in difficult times, which may not necessarily change this meaningless life without God, you put God in it, and then your troubles and sufferings you can rejoice in because they draw you closer to him, make you rely on him more. Jacob had a pretty decent life as the younger twin with Esau in the family of Isaac and Rebekah. Grandpa Abraham was around, and they had wealth. They had plenty of sheep and cattle and donkeys and camels. Plenty, 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 plenty. They had lots. And he was doing just fine. But he wanted more. He wanted to be what the firstborn's inheritance would be. He wanted to be the family leader. Instead of waiting for God's time, he was going to grab it in his deceitful way. And then he had to flee for his life and travel north because his brother was out to kill him. You know the story, right? It took 20 years for God to train Jacob in humility and trust through difficult times. That's a long time. Moses starts off life and he is living with the princess, right? And he's got 40 years of training in Egypt and he's to be eventually probably taken over the throne. He is a big shot in Egypt, having been pulled out of the reeds of the Nile River and raised in the king's palace. But when he took matters into his own hands, he has to flee, and it took how long for God to train him in humility and trust? Another 40 years. It took some time. And this is what God does, though. I don't like to sign up for crummy stuff in life. I don't think you do either. But this is what we begin to understand in the, what's called the theology of the cross, the cross of Jesus in our life. Then our sufferings are an indication he wants to draw us closer. 
trust me more. I'll never forget the, one of the first hospital calls I had uh, when I was internship year, my vicar year, and I talked to a man who was 42 years old and he was suffering terribly from cancer. He did eventually recover, but he was on his back in the hospital, and they long hospital stays in those days, you know. And uh, when I was chatting with him, I said, this is not an easy thing for you, I'm sure, with a young family and you're 42 and your career going, and now here you are flat on your back. He said, well, I think the Lord put me flat on my back so I get a better look at him. <laughs> and so I had a chance to learn and grow when I'm trying to help him. He was helping me, you know. Isn't that cool? You know, and that's what Solomon helps. Everything is beautiful in its time. How about this next little phrase in verse 11? There's lots of stuff in verse 11. He has set eternity in the human heart. Can you explain that? What do you think that means? He has set eternity in the human heart. What might that mean? So no matter what we're going through here on earth, we always know, well, at least God's going to get us to heaven. Well, no matter what we go through, there's going to be, yeah, what set eternity in the heart. We have a sense, even when we're born, there's sense that there's something more. Now, it's clarified through Scripture and what that really is through Jesus, but there's that longing. There's something, this world is not it. It's, it's not the be-all, end-all of existence. God has set eternity in our hearts. And at the end of verse 11, when it says, um, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. In the study guide, consider everything that God has done and will do from creation to judgment day. How much do we really know about what God has done? How much do we really know, Stacey? So very little, yeah. And is that good or bad? Uh, I don't think it matters. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You, yeah. God tells us what we need to know. He tells us what we need to know. You've captured the spirit of what uh, the teacher Solomon wants us to learn from Ecclesiastes. It really doesn't matter. We can strive and work and go ahead and enjoy this life. He talks about that in this book, too. But finally, what matters is our eternity. I'm at verse, uh, let's see, I didn't finish one thing I wanted to look at. Verse 14. Yeah, that statement there. Nothing can be added to what God does and nothing taken from it. So what two areas, in what two areas is that truth especially important? Nothing can be added to what God has done and nothing taken from it. What two areas is that truth especially important? God's word. His word, the Holy Scriptures, and also, Trish? Salvation. Our salvation, right. Those two things, God has done it, we don't need to add to it, or subtract, nor can we, nor dare we try. Salvation and Scripture. Verse 15 and following, whatever is has already been. And what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I'm still going on. And I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Hmm. Surely... Uh, the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because 
that is their lot, for who can bring them to see what will happen? Um, Solomon is talking about in place of judgment he sees wickedness, in place of justice, wickedness. So what keeps people in check from the gross outbreak of sin? Maybe you think there isn't such a thing because people all over the place have gross outbreak. What, what keeps in check the gross outbreak of sin? Nancy? What if they don't know the commandments of God or never heard them? That's possible. What keeps the gross outbreak of sin? Joint? He's placed authorities over us. So you might break laws and you're going to get caught. Yeah. <laughs> if you've got naughty kids and don't say stop that. <laughs> there, is, there is some accountability. Yeah. Trish, you had. There are consequences that occur, kind of what Joanna was saying. Yeah, when things occur. Linda? We're born with an innate sense of right and wrong. Now, that doesn't get us to heaven because we don't know the real right, Jesus, but there is this sense that even if I never read the Bible, if I never had a connection with God, if I never knew anything about Scripture, I would know that punching you in the face is wrong. I would know that. I would know that killing you is wrong. I would, I would, just, I would know that. Humans have that general sense of right and wrong, and that gets testified to by their little voice in their head. Yeah, so what keeps the gross outbreak of sin is conscience and this natural knowledge of God, God's law, this natural sense. It's not enough to get us to heaven. But how can Solomon say, verse 18, that uh, humans, God tests them so they may see that they are like the animals. How does that compare with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26? God said, let's make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all, over all the creatures. How does that fit when Solomon says what he does? How can he say this? As for man, God tests them so that they may see that they're just like the animals. How can he say that? Billy, a thought on that? Well, we do have certain things in common with the animals. I mean, there are certain things in common. Yeah, that we were created with living, breathing creatures. Animals. And we, to, uh, the fact that we both die. We both die. That is true. God's design in the perfect world was that humans would be interacting and caring for God's creation and be guardians and keepers of even then animal kingdom. Sin comes into the world and messes that all up. So that's one side of it. The other side is, once again, here's back to the theme of the book. If you take your God out of the picture and you have no connection with him and no eternity, then you are just like the animals then you have no eternal soul that's going to live forever. If that's all there is, if there's no God. And once again, 
Once again, you'll hear this time and again. Solomon, through this book, is helping us say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need to have a connection with God. I do have an eternal soul. I want to be connected to him. I long for that a little bit more in this section. I'm turning the study guide over. I want to look again at verse 21. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth? This implies an unspoken contrast, and I guess I'm asking you to sort of reiterate what we're talking about here. So what unspoken contrast is this, really? He's asking it in a question format. Who knows if the spirit of human goes up and animal down? What's the contrast he's hinting at? Linda. Your human body goes to the dirt, whatever. Your soul will go to heaven. Your soul goes forever, right. And this is hard for animal lovers and pet owners, but animals do not have a soul like you do. Now, somebody then always challenges me. Well, wait a minute. Will my doggy be in heaven? So, only if he had a relationship with God. <laughs> only if he was a believer in Jesus. <laughs> God is going to bless us with all good things. I don't doubt that we're going to enjoy wonderful things like we have on earth in heaven, but that's not the point. Heaven is being with God, and that's what our true love is, whether animals are there or not. Nancy? If you have a pet, your pet, and, and they do something wrong, and you say, oh, they, they, yeah. know, they, they know. They know if they misbehave. Right, right. But that doesn't mean they have an eternal soul like you do. No, no. To have a relationship with God forever, that's the point. And that's really what he's getting at here. Once again, it's this theme of the book, longing for our connection with God now and forever. I'm going to wrap up in chapter 4. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. There's that phrase. I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. At times, in my study guide, it seems that the wicked go unpunished by God. What answer did Habakkuk receive concerning this? I don't know if I got that passage up here. I did. We urge your brothers and sisters. That's not the passage I wanted. That was a copy. Um, you should maybe take the time to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You have your Bibles? Now we're going to have you page around a little bit. Way near the back of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, 1 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy. So if you get to Timothy or Hebrews, you went too far. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. At times it seems that the wicked go unpunished what answer did the apostle have? Are you there? Let's see if I get there too. Does somebody uh, want to read that loudly for us here? Second Thessalonians 1, starting at verse 6. We'll just do a couple of these verses. Trish, you got it? Here it comes. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the truth, 
I think that's far enough. So when we see that there is wickedness and evil and we think, uh-oh, it seems like it goes unpunished, the apostle says, what? It bothers me if there are wicked who are unpunished. Jane, you had a thought there? I was just going to say, at Judgment Day, God is going to address Yeah, at Judgment Day, he will address that. In the, in the Habakkuk passage, Habakkuk was wondering about God allowing evil and wickedness to go on, and God's statement to him was, trust me, live by faith, I know what I'm doing. Put it in God's hands. I'm going to go a little bit farther um, in my study guide there. The dead are happier than the living. How is this true and not true at the same time? How is this true and not true at the same time? Trish? Well, there's no more suffering. There's no more suffering. There's no more suffering if you're... Right. I think of, um, the other friend who lost a 10-year-old son, and their like, hope and joy, knowing that he's in heaven also, like, he was just the most trusting boy. And they're like, who knows who would have taken advantage of him? Yeah, yeah. All the stuff so a 10-year-old who had died, very trusting, but he might have ended up with a lot of pain. And so, he's in heaven. He's in heaven. Yeah. The reference I have here in Philippians is another great passage to look at. And let's turn our Bibles there, too. We have another minute left, I think, or two. So in the New Testament, can you find Philippians chapter 1? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And I'm thinking of verses 21 to 25. This is all based on that the dead are happier than the living, Solomon's statement. Here's what Paul has to say. Did you find it in Philippians chapter 1? What, in the church Bible, what page is it? 1179. In the church Bibles. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So the apostle for me to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So which is better, to be dead or to be alive? Both, right? If we're alive, we can serve our Lord and have a relationship with him. If we die, we're in perfect joy in heaven. Mary Lynn. It's by far worse if you're not a believer. Absolutely. So this wraps up in verses 4 to 6. I saw, all, I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. It seems that verse 6 is really the fool's reply to being castigated for laziness. So verse 5 Fools just sit back, fold their hands over their tummy and sit back and do nothing and they come to ruin. And then the fool responds by saying, well, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil. I'd rather sit back and, you know, do nothing than have to work and sweat so hard. Um, it's an interesting way that we wrap up this section. But the question here is, I saw that all toil and achievement spring from a person's envy. So what motivates you to be successful? in your life, in your business, in your career. What motivates you to be successful? That's an interesting thought that you maybe didn't expect. What motivates you to be successful? 
John? Talk about my new man or the old sinful nature, right? The old sinful nature, the answer would be what motivates me, my sinful nature, to be successful? What would? To be successful and happy. To be successful and happy. That motivates just to be successful. Yeah, but what motivates you to, to be successful in the sinful nature? It would be pleasing to God. He in the sinful nature? The, what's, what motivates the sinful nature? To have things, to have things Dorcas? Greed, money. I get greed. I get a happy life. I get, you know, be happy. Uh, you know, that motivates people to have a nice life, an easy life, a big house, a big car, big vacation, whatever. You know, that, that sinful nature is motivated by... But what motivates the believer in Jesus to be successful in life? Because it would be pleasing to God. It would be pleasing to God. And, Linda? In thanksgiving for what he's given He's given us job and health and family and everything, and uh, especially he's given us forgiveness of sins. That's what motivates us. What gets us to do our loving and caring and giving and serving is what Jesus did for us in his life and death. Wow. And he proved it to be true when he rose. So here is the final part of this today. We've listened to and learned from Solomon in this section. Are you ready for Monday? Talking about toil? Come on, where's the... Are you ready for Monday? <laughs> if you look at it from Solomon's view, yeah? You know that God's watching over you, so he'll help you out. You know that God watches over you and cares for you, and he's loved you eternally. So it's either the view of tomorrow's Monday, oh, no, or tomorrow, hey, I get to serve my God and others, and we get to sing about that too. God who made the earth and heaven, darkness and light, you the day for work have given, for rest the night. May your angels defend us, slumber sweet, your mercy send us, Holy dreams and hopes attend us all through the night. And when morn again shall call us to run life's way, may we still whate'er befall us, your will obey. From the power of evil hide us in the narrow pathway guide us. Never be your smile denied us all through the day. Have a wonderful day. Hang out a little bit. We don't start again until about 10.15 and you can chat with those people coming in. God bless your week. <laughs>